0: to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. First, I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. But what you choose to do with that information is always your choice. And what works for one may not work for all. In our previous episode, we talked about deep listening, and I shared some of my favorite tips that I've learned so far from my 2022 yearly intention learning and listening tour. I have already heard from a few listeners that they are using what was shared to work on their thought hygiene as a result of the episode, which is really exciting to hear. I've been amazed at how well it has been working for me, too, so if you're struggling with rumination or dark thoughts, revisit the episode for some helpful tips. Today, I'd like to talk about Lyme disease and share what the research says about the Lyme-MS connection. You'll notice that I used the word conundrum in today's episode title, and that was certainly deliberate. Conundrum is defined as a confusing and difficult problem or question, and pretty much everything related to Lyme and related to the Lyme-MS connection certainly qualifies. Both Lyme and MS are very difficult to diagnose, and they also have much in common in how they manifest in humans over time. Today, we'll look at this controversy, the similarities, differences, the history, more recent findings, and what's happening now to try to make sense of both Lyme and MS. For today's gratitude, I am grateful for everything that is cheerfully blooming in the garden, and for everything that isn't blooming that typically would be blooming this time of year. As regular listeners know, this has been a difficult start to the year for our family with the loss of my dear mother-in-law. Since this tragic loss has come with a long list of imperative to-dos, many of our typical end-of-winter-start-of-spring routines have been thrown out of whack or set aside. This is not unlike our garden this year. Oddly, fruit is already forming on all of our fruit trees for a few weeks now, and while this sometimes happens with the nectarines and peaches, it's unusual to see apricots and cherries also emerging so early. Also, we haven't experienced the simultaneous rose explosion that we typically do. Rather, individual rose plants are seemingly on their own schedule this year acting as individual entities rather than a synchronized cohort of 100 plants. Some of our various bulbs shot up gloriously this spring, with numerous promising green shoots, yet didn't produce any flowers. And a late freeze truncated the growth of many plants for a short while, resulting in uneven stems, awkward leaf shapes, and abundant discoloration. Our garden, like us, has experienced unanticipated disruption this year. And while the early events of this year will likely play out in the garden in observable ways for the rest of the growing season, herein lies an important lesson for us all. Like our garden has experienced this year, life constantly throws us curveballs that we can't anticipate. Things don't go as planned. We experience hardship and loss. We might not bloom as brightly or feel as happy as usual, and yet we adjust, and, like our garden, we mostly bloom anyway. This spring, may we all find ways to weather whatever storms we face, ways to mend fences and relationships, ways to traverse hardships and losses with grace, honor, and compassion, and, like the garden, to choose to bloom. Anyway, today we're going to look at the MS Lyme connection. I chose to revisit this topic after setting it aside years ago because it feels highly relevant to our times, and I wanted to review what has been shared about Lyme and Lyme and MS, as well as other similar neurological conditions over the years and through today's contextual lens. I don't typically share my rationale for episode topics, but for this particular episode, I think it's important that I do. This was not a planned episode for me. It all began just a week or so ago when I came across an article titled, Multiple Sclerosis is Lyme Disease, which caught my attention and sent me down quite the research rabbit hole. I'll share some titles of articles that I read, and you'll see right away that this is a contentious topic with much polarity and true experts with substantial clout on both sides. MS is Lyme, anatomy of a cover-up. MS is not Lyme disease. Lyme, no link to MS, ALS, Alzheimer's, autism, or Parkinson's. After 20-year misdiagnosis of MS, Dr. Liz Heininger works courageously to help those with chronic Lyme. Lyme deaths versus MS deaths. Map significant overlap. MRI images in Lyme disease may appear similar to the demyelinated areas seen in the white matter of the brain MRI of patients with MS. Treating MS and Lyme disease with antibiotics. Mother diagnosed with MS and facing a life in a wheelchair is cured after she discovered her symptoms were due to a tick bite. Is there a causal relationship between Lyme disease and ALS? Couple misdiagnosed with MS, then diagnosed with Lyme disease. Treatment of ALS and MS with anti-Lyme disease antibiotics. Lyme, related to MS, fibromyalgia, Parkinson's, lupus, chronic fatigue syndrome, ALS, autism, and other conditions. Comparison maps pertaining to Lyme, canine Lyme, and MS. Lyme disease, EBV, and the immune system. Former Lunenburg counselor misdiagnosed with Lyme, now told he has ALS. Debunking when ALS is Lyme. The hidden relation between fibromyalgia and EBV. Lyme co-infections with EBV. Lyme disease serology in ALS. Study disproves link between Lyme and Alzheimer's. Misdiagnosis of Lyme disease as MS. Dementia in patients with Lyme. Lyme disease and MS, fact and fiction. EBV is the possible cause of fibromyalgia. Confounding issues in the diagnosis of MS, Lyme disease testing. Lyme Borrelia antibodies found in MS patients. COVID-19 and Lyme disease have more in common than you might think. Are chronic fatigue syndrome and EBV related? Seriologic markers of Lyme disease in children with autism. Influenza triggers relapses in MS. EBV, reactivation, may be the cause of long COVID. Concurrent neuroborealisis and Alzheimer's. Studies suggest EBV and bacterial infections, especially Lyme Borrelia, play a role in etiology of MS, the role of EBV in ITP, COVID-19 and the risk of MS relapse, lack of serum antibodies against Borrelia in children with autism, Lyme can cause MS or mimic it. Does Lyme disease induce autism in children? Pseudoscience alert, Lyme-induced autism. As you can deduce from this sample of the wide range of titles that either strongly support or strongly deny the linkages between Lyme, MS, ALS, Parkinson's, autism, and dementia, there is clearly no clear answer. So today, we're going to delve into this mess so that we can try to make sense of it and also see if there's anything relevant for each of us to take away from this ongoing conundrum. After I read a bunch of articles and was more confused than ever, I reached out to a dear lifelong friend who lives with Lyme and a smattering of other autoimmune symptoms, in addition to now living with long COVID symptoms since early 2020. Her reply piqued further interest because given all she has experienced living with Lyme for a very long time and working with an endless list of doctors and specialists, she believes that Lyme, MS, epstein barr virus, or EBV, in the presence of the MTHFR gene may all be connected and with long COVID more recently added to the list. I have never experienced genetic testing for the MTHFR gene or been tested for Lyme, but I'll share here that I personally experienced a nasty tick bite in my early 20s while traversing the Sierra foothills of California, which is an area where Lyme-infected ticks can live. As a side note, on state public health websites, in the vector-borne disease section, you can access your individual county data for a variety of vector-borne diseases like West Nile virus, Lyme, Hantavirus, and others. Knowing what bacterial, parasitic, and viral risks reside in the county where you live or the counties where you travel can be quite helpful in learning how to safely avoid infection and what symptoms to look for if you do become infected. Back to that pesky tick bite I mentioned. I actually don't know how long the tick was burrowed inside me, which is unfortunate since most research shows a tick must be attached a minimum of 36 to 48 hours in order to successfully transmit Lyme. This tick chose to burrow into my skin on the side of my rib cage under my bra strap, So I mistakenly thought the irritation I was experiencing was simply chafing from my bra strap while hiking and sweating in the hot Sierra sun. I discovered the tick while showering. I had someone remove it, but the tick was destroyed in the process, so we were never able to get it tested for Lyme. I do not recall experiencing the telltale bullseye rash or erythema migrans or EM as it's called at the bite site. But I was interested to learn in my recent research that this rash that is experienced by 60 to 80% of Lyme patients may reappear on other areas of the body as well. And I do remember experiencing such rashes in several places on my body that were irritating and very warm to the touch. Although since it was so many years ago now, I cannot pinpoint the exact location on the timeline for definitive correlation. But part of me has also always wondered about this tick experience. Mm-hmm. Since this was about the time I started experiencing light sensitivity to the extent that I had to wear sunglasses any anytime I was outside. And it's also when I started developing food sensitivities, some 20 years prior to my MS diagnosis. This resurfacing curiosity, layered upon the articles I had read and my discussion with my friend with Lyme, inspired my research this past week. So, let's dive in. I'll repeat here from the get-go that there is no current consensus, and that this is a highly contentious topic which is made clear by both sides. That said, I believe progress will be made when more people like us who understand the lived experience of MS have a better understanding of Lyme and its possible connection to MS and EBV. So my hope is that today, while I share information about Lyme and MS and similar conditions, that we each listen critically and reflect on our own lived experiences, symptoms, and beliefs. And as always, I welcome outreach if this episode sparks a desire for connection and continued conversation. Much of what I'll share in this episode moving forward is from three resources. The original 2009 documentary called Under Our Skin, available on YouTube the Under Our Skin 2 Emergence 2015 documentary available on Voodoo or YouTube, and a 2013 UCSF Osher Mini Medical School for the Public presentation by Dr. Richard A. Jacobs called The History and Current Controversy of Lyme. After watching these, I sought after more current updates to learn what's happening now in this arena, which I'll also share. Let's first address EBV, or Epstein-Barr virus. EBV has been in the news quite a bit lately as a potential environmental activator of MS. While we won't talk much about EBV today, it's important to know that 95% of the world's population is EBV positive. This spread is pretty astonishing when we learn that EBV was first discovered in 1964, then linked to mononucleosis in 1968. EBV, in a recent article published in the journal Science, is, as of now, solidly believed to be an environmental trigger for MS. Researchers found, through their examination of blood from a large group of adults over the course of 20 years, that 34 out of 35 people who developed MS and had originally tested negative for EBV actually tested positive for the virus prior to their MS diagnosis. That's over 97%, in contrast to 57% of people without an MS diagnosis who later tested positive for EBV. It's important to note that being EBV positive does not mean someone will for sure develop MS, but the study did find that a new EBV infection in adults increased the risk of developing MS by 32 times. Similar risks were not detected when studying other viral infections. Other studies have shown when people like us already diagnosed with MS experience a new EBV infection, it can trigger further progression. So further development of vaccines and antivirals could prove to be a serious game changer for us. Now, let's shift to look at Lyme. Lyme is believed to be caused by four main species of the bacteria Borrelia all of which are carried by deer ticks and transmitted to humans and other species through the tick's bite. The difference in these four species is mainly where they are prevalent in the world. Bacteria are often confused with viruses, as both can cause similar infections in humans and other species. What's most important to know is that current science adheres to the belief that antibiotics can effectively kill bacteria, but are not effective against viruses. While I likely don't need to have to tell you that there is much people do not agree upon regarding a current virus of the times, COVID-19, regardless our personal beliefs about the seriousness of the COVID-19 ongoing pandemic, or how to mitigate said virus, we can hopefully all agree on the basic science, That COVID-19 is a virus with the potential to cause debilitating ongoing neurological symptoms that negatively impact numerous body systems in humans and likely other living species on our planet. In fact, recent studies show that worldwide, there is a very large number of folks testing positive for COVID-19 that then experience long COVID, which are symptoms that remain for at least 12 weeks after recovery. The numbers are still all over the place, depending on the source, counting methods, and particular study. But numbers range from the conservative 10% to a much more significant 50% of people experiencing ongoing neurologic symptoms more than 12 weeks after a COVID exposure and recovery. Symptoms of long COVID include brain fog, headache, disrupted sleep, pins and needles and numbness, dizziness, sudden confusion, difficulties with mobility, and visual disturbances. Symptoms also include breathing difficulty, heart palpitations, digestive concerns, joint and muscular pain, ear, nose, throat symptoms, tinnitus, skin rashes, hair loss, and mental health deterioration, including depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Let's stop for a moment and each think about our own MS symptoms and how they might compare with long COVID symptoms. For me, there are significant overlaps, and this is precisely why I've been trying so hard to avoid infection these past few years, and why I can understand my friend's conviction that there is a connection between Lyme, MS, EBV, and now COVID. As the world has been forced to learn more about this particular virus, COVID-19, the silver lining is that more information has emerged about other viruses as well, like how we discussed EBV and its connection to MS. It's interesting to note that EBV is also currently being researched as a possible activator of Lyme disease as well. There is still much to learn about viruses and bacteria and their long-term impact on humanity. So today, let's look backwards to see if another look can help us make sense of what we're currently facing and hopefully get us to think critically about the complexity of our own MS diagnoses and manifestation of our ongoing illness. First, some background and general information about the original award-winning documentary, Under Our Skin. The documentary introduces us to the small town of Lyme, Connecticut, where in the early 1970s, a mysterious illness impacting many families in the area was first diagnosed as juvenile arthritis, only to eventually be categorized as Lyme disease, an illness triggered by a small spiral-shaped bacterial microorganism named Borrelia burgdorferi. Those left untreated suffer chronic, debilitating bouts of illness, often losing their ability to work and unknowingly passing along the disease to their offspring. Following a 1975 report to the state health department about these unusual developments, two doctors set out to learn more. They found that 51 of about 2,000 city residents, all of whom lived in heavily wooded areas rather than in the main city center, had all experienced a sudden onset of severe joint pain in their knees and ankles lasting several weeks, alongside other symptoms like fever, fatigue, headache, muscle aches, rashes, and flu-like symptoms. 70% experienced recurrences of these symptoms, and flares were most common between June and September, leading to an early classification of the, quote, summer flu. One person recalled experiencing a tick bite, which helped confirm the researcher's theory that the illness was in fact transmitted by an arthropod vector, i.e. a tick. Lyme is one of the most misunderstood illnesses of our current times, and not unlike MS, is extremely difficult to accurately diagnose. In fact, many people with Lyme are misdiagnosed with conditions like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, autism, ALS, Parkinson's, and our very own MS, which as many of us have personally experienced, has its own unique challenges in the obtaining an accurate and timely diagnosis realm. According to the CDC, currently more than 300,000 people in the United States acquire Lyme disease each year, which is greater than those afflicted by breast cancers and AIDS combined. It's important to note that this number has drastically increased from old reports just a few years ago that believed there were only about 30,000 cases each year. Yet even as more accurate numbers are reported, many healthcare professionals continue to believe that Lyme itself is still very rare and easily detectable and treatable, and that chronic Lyme is caused by something else or is completely psychosomatic. For the record, psychosomatic is defined as a physical illness or other condition caused by or aggravated by mental factors, such as internal conflict or stress. This is a response, too, that many of us may have heard from our own doctors when inquiring about our MS symptoms. Many of us can sadly personally understand what it's like when a doctor tells us they don't know what's wrong with us. We're not alone in that. Under Our Skin introduces us to a number of people who have walked into their doctor's office and not been able to find a viable medical solution for what they are experiencing. In the documentary, we meet people struggling significantly with neurological symptoms impacting their mobility, causing debilitating fatigue, memory loss, cognitive issues, visual disturbances, depression, tremors, and experiencing severe stabbing and shooting pain, severe headaches, and sore, swollen joints. In 1981, Dr. Willie Bergdorfer, PhD, discovered the bacteria causing Lyme. This particular bacteria, Borrelia bergdorfer, is shaped like a spiral, a spirochette in biology terms, so it's able to drill into various parts of the body and spread easily, causing much damage across many body systems. As a bacteria, Lyme should be able to be cured by antibiotics, and in fact, the CDC recommends up to four weeks of antibiotics as an appropriate treatment. And yet, there are more and more people every year suffering from Lyme disease, with their health getting worse and worse and worse, even after treatment. So there's something else going on here. Many experts believe that only about 15% of Lyme cases are truly neurological, but doctors who treat Lyme patients believe that number is much, much higher. Over the years, there has been a very rapid rise in Lyme cases in the United States and throughout the world. Many doctors still believe that true Lyme disease is extremely rare and easily treatable, but there is a growing number of people who believe there is something more serious going on. Typical treatments for Lyme involve months of antibiotics, but even those are not often successful. And like MS, there is no definitively accurate test for Lyme. In fact, at the time of the Under Our Skin documentary, reports showed that about 50% of people with Lyme actually test negative for the Lyme test. Many people with Lyme experience relief once they receive their diagnosis because they finally feel like a solution is on the way. Many of us with MS can relate. But for many with Lyme, they unfortunately find that even though Lyme is believed to be a bacterial infection, they are not successfully treated with antibiotics and their symptoms are ongoing. Researchers believe that as our climate is warming and human development infringes upon previously undisturbed habitats, that this is resulting in an increase in the jump of bacteria and viruses across species. In other words, as we, as humans, expand across the world into areas we didn't used to live, and as the planet concurrently gradually warms we can expect to encounter more and more bacteria, parasites, and viruses that are novel to our species that we aren't prepared for and don't know how to identify or treat effectively. The most recent of these to emerge is COVID-19. It won't be the last. So, what is going on and why aren't the antibiotics believed to cure Lyme disease working consistently? Ticks feed on a host for up to five days, allowing for substantial transmission. And more recently, ticks have been found to host a wide variety of bacteria and viruses, not just one, making people even sicker with complex multibacterial and multiviral infections. Symptoms of what has been categorized as chronic Lyme are as follows, and again, when I share this list, be thinking about which of these you may have experienced as someone living with MS. Chronic Lyme symptoms include severe fatigue, neck stiffness and pain, joint pain, headache, migraine, a variety of visual disturbances, including light sensitivity, impaired muscle movement and loss of limb mobility, and fine and gross motor ability common miscarriages, facial paralysis, Bell's palsy, irregular heartbeat, liver and brain inflammation as well as inflammation of the heart, fever, chills, muscular pain, arthritis, meningitis, sleep and mood disturbances, speech difficulties, cognitive defects such as impaired memory. Twitches, tremors, and skin disturbances like ASA, which causes the skin to look like parchment paper. Often, these symptoms wax and wane, similar to relapsing-remitting MS. The Under Our Skin documentary and the sequel also address how many researchers, insurance companies, and pharmaceutical companies, specifically around Lyme, were believed to stop focusing on seeking solutions for people living with Lyme, and started focusing rather on other pathways where they would benefit from capitalistic gains. This mirrors a common feeling amongst folks with MS who feel like it's in our doctors, insurance, and pharmaceutical companies' best interest to keep us sick rather than truly treating the root cause of our illnesses. Dr. Alan McDonald has studied the connection of Lyme disease to Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis. He found that 70% of Alzheimer's brains contained Borrelia, which again is the Lyme disease spirochete. Another clinic shared that in all their years of practice, they have not had a single MS, ALS, or Parkinson's patient that did not test positive for Borrelia. Yet current belief by mainstream medicine is that Lyme has nothing to do with Alzheimer's, MS, ALS, autism, or Parkinson's, and that Lyme is still easily treatable by antibiotics within several weeks. So those who remain sick long after must have something different or some other condition. Because of existing documentation, if you're one of those many unlucky people, insurance is unlikely to approve any long-term treatment for chronic Lyme, leaving many of these patients in a state of despair. It's such a contentious issue that many people living with Lyme feel like Lyme is a political and economic disease as much as it is a bacterial-borne infection. Some physicians who choose to continue to treat long-term Lyme past the CDC recommendations have had their licenses suspended and have been fined hundreds of thousands of dollars, putting many out of practice. Many of these complaints derive from insurance companies, who feel like the way these doctors are treating their patients is costing them a lot of needless money that, frankly, they don't want to spend. Most famous is Dr. Charles Ray Jones in Connecticut. Dr. Jones is the world's leading pediatric Lyme specialist. He has treated well over 15,000 children from around the globe over a period of more than four decades. He has helped countless more through his training of other doctors and through sharing his knowledge at conferences for both medical professionals and patients. Many patients credit Dr. Jones for saving their lives and the lives of their children. It hurts my heart to hear about insurance dictating care and leaving so many without viable solutions. As someone currently facing a likely change in MS treatment because insurance doesn't want to continue to cover my treatment that has been effective since 2016, it's not too much of a stretch to believe this might be true. The good news is that federal Lyme disease funding is currently on the rise, so hopefully we will know more about Lyme very soon, as well as its possible connection to other illnesses. I firmly believe that as we further unravel the mystery that is Lyme, that it will illuminate critical information about MS, ALS, Parkinson's, and other related neurological conditions, including those caused by EBV and COVID-19. The more we know, the better treatment and long-term outcomes we can expect. The CDC is currently tasked with developing and implementing methods to improve surveillance to more accurately report disease occurrence, as well as developing a process for estimating the prevalence of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, or what others call chronic Lyme. They are focused on improving early diagnosis and treatment to prevent the development of late-stage disease and more serious subsequent long-term disability. The CDC has also been encouraged to coordinate with mental health experts to better understand the links between tick-borne disease and psychiatric illnesses. I'll note here that there is some belief that chronic Lyme can cause serious neuropsychiatric symptoms, resulting in aggression, rage, and oppositional defiant behaviors in humans, going as far as blaming the Sandy Hook school shooting incident on congenital Lyme. That particular incident has been heavily contested, although it is not contested that a Lyme infection may cause sudden aggression in dogs. When Lyme is identified and treated early, within seven to 10 days after the bite, the infection is considered localized. If unsuccessfully treated or left untreated, in addition to fatigue, headache, fever, rash, muscle aches, and pains, Patients may experience additional neurologic symptoms, meningitis, which is commonly accompanied by stiff neck, light sensitivity, and headache, encephalitis, facial palsy, peripheral neuropathy, both motor and sensory, heart block, which causes dizziness and lightheadedness. Within months to years, 60% experience what is considered late-stage infection, with arthritis of the large, weight-bearing joints, most often knees, ankles, and hips. They may also experience peripheral neuropathy with pain, numbness, and tingling, most common in hands and feet, as well as cognitive impairment and spasticity. So, like most diseases, it's better to seek treatment early. But what if you aren't aware you were bitten and symptoms come on gradually and you're not sure what's going on? Much of the ongoing heated controversy around Lyme is how it's tested and diagnosed. The current thinking of IDSA Lyme experts is that all patients with objective neurologic cardiac or joint abnormalities associated with Lyme disease have a detectable serologic response to Borrelia. Testing for Lyme has mostly been done through utilization of the ELISA test, which is an enzyme-linked immunoassay test. It's a two-stage serologic test. The first stage picks up Lyme and a bunch of other possible culprits. If that test comes back negative, current protocol states there is no further testing ordered and the person is considered Lyme negative even if they have symptoms that continue. If the first stage test comes back positive, the second test, the Western blot test, comes into play. 94-99% to of people with Lyme test positive on this test, according to the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America. But hold that thought for a moment, because not everyone believes this to be true. In fact, a 2005 James Hopkins study found that using the ELISA and Western blot misses up to 75% of positive Lyme cases. There are also many patients with Lyme who test negative on the initial ELISA test yet have fully diagnostic western blots. Numerous Lyme literate doctors or LLPHs don't believe in the efficacy of these tests and they have personal experience with numerous patients they believe have Lyme that do not test positive on these tests and they believe That number might be as high as 90% of people living with Lyme who do not test positive on the currently available tests. They also suggest many people get tested too early before there's a detectable amount of Borella in their systems, so they may also test negative for that reason. And what happens to many of these patients past testing is that they are left with a doctor telling them they do have Lyme, but a healthcare system telling them they don't, and therefore insurance will not pay for any of their continued care. Groups like the LLPH, the Lyme Literate Physicians, or I-L-A-D-S, International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, as well as European equivalents such as the Borreliosis Society in Germany and the Dutch Lyme Association, are working closely with powerful patient advocacy groups to find solutions for people suffering from chronic Lyme and are interested in expanding treatment as well as finding more accurate diagnostic tools. There's definitely something amiss when it comes to both treating and understanding Lyme. And it gets even more disturbing the deeper into the controversy you go. For example, at one point in 1998, there was a very effective vaccine available for Lyme. It was found to be 78% effective. And yet, it was completely discontinued in 2002 because of fears of lawsuits from vaccine-induced adverse effects, and insurance companies did not want any of that liability. This is just one example of our litigious society resulting in a lost medical solution for many. What's widely considered the best current test for Lyme is conducted by a company in the San Francisco Bay Area called iGeneX. Since they've been heavily fined in the past for using a more comprehensive set of guidelines than the CDC currently allows, to avoid future litigation, they now legally have to share two sets of results, based on the CDC guidelines for Lyme, and what more Lyme-literate physicians believe to be more accurate. So, for example, when you receive your test results, it might say that your CDC interpretation is negative while your X interpretation is positive. I think it's important for those of us with MS to understand this hardship that our Lyme brothers and sisters face, especially because there is similarly no clear diagnostic test for MS. We often think we are alone in the struggle for an accurate diagnosis, since on average it can take three to five years to arrive at an MS diagnosis. What this research on Lyme has taught me is that we are definitely not alone in this struggle. There are a few more aspects of the Lyme conundrum that are relevant to share today. One is the idea that Lyme can be transmitted from mother to baby in utero. The CDC and mainstream medicine says this doesn't happen. Yet there are doctors like Dr. Jones who have treated numerous children who had no known personal exposures and who had mothers with diagnosed Lyme. My dear friend with Lyme also unknowingly transmitted Lyme in utero to two of her children who have various difficulties as a result, with one's symptoms seriously exacerbated by long COVID. There is clearly so much left to learn, and yet current research isn't well supported by the CDC, and groups who try to continue their own research are often shut down. Those who are bucking the system and doing the research anyways are finding new discoveries that may change everything. For example, in Norway, a recently developed culture method was developed as a potentially more accurate and reliable method to test for Borrelia. It's a microscopic test where researchers can actually see the Spirochet Borrelia. Unfortunately, the lab was shut down, preventing further research for now. Another recent discovery has been made that shows the Borrelia Spirochet can survive and thrive in biofilm. In the human body, bacterial biofilms can be found on many surfaces, such as the skin, teeth, and mucosa plaque that forms on teeth is an example of a biofilm. We know now that most bacteria are capable of forming biofilms. Why does this matter when we're talking about Borrelia and Lyme? Well, bacterial biofilms cause 65% of all human infections and are highly resistant to antibiotic therapy, but lack specific treatments. So, If Borrelia can essentially hide from tests and protect itself in biofilm, making it indetectable and resistant to antibiotics, then this could be a game changer when it comes to testing for and identifying active Lyme in patients. And it makes sense. No wonder there are so many people living with Lyme for whom four weeks of antibiotics was insufficient. What's scary about Borrelia being able to hide in biofilm is that Lyme and other bacterias that can also hide in biofilm may be able to be sexually transmitted through genital secretions as evidenced by same strain detection in married couples. There was an article about this in Outside Magazine a while back, but the CDC shut down that avenue of thinking pretty quickly. If Lyme is able to be transmitted from person to person, it will change how all of us look at Lyme and similar diseases and their transmission. Currently, you can find research that says Lyme bacteria may be found in bodily fluids such as saliva, urine, and breast milk, but that there's no hard evidence that Lyme spreads from person to person via contact with bodily fluids. But there are experts on both sides who strongly believe in their stance. Dr. Elizabeth Maloney, for example, who is notably the president of the Partnership for Tick-Borne Diseases Education, says, quote, The evidence for sexual transmission that I've seen is very weak and certainly not conclusive in any scientific sense. And yet Lyme researcher Dr. Raphael Stryker says, quote, there's no reason why the Lyme spirochet borrelia can't be sexually transmitted by human beings. How commonly it occurs or how difficult it is, we don't yet know. Interestingly, a few animal studies of sexual transmission of the Lyme Spirochet Borrelia have shown that it does occur in some cases, and there are definitely a lot of Lyme patients who agree and who swear their only exposure has been through direct contact with their partner. Experts do agree that live Lyme Spirochets have been found in semen and vaginal secretions of people with documented Lyme but many do not believe there would be enough shared to spread infection. In 2017, a Canadian study showed that antibiotics can slow the progression of MS. Participants in the trial who experienced their first demyelinating symptoms were randomized to receive 100 milligrams two times a day of either the oral antibiotic minocycline or a placebo. The study showed a 28% reduction in the number of patients who developed full-blown MS over time. If you listened to episode 53, Understanding Our Autoimmunity, you might already be thinking what I'm thinking. What if antibiotics were used as an early line of defense during the prodromal phase of MS? This could possibly prevent a significant amount of us from ever fully developing MS in the first place. It will be interesting to see what happens as a result of these ongoing studies, as antibiotics are much less expensive, averaging about $600 per year, versus typical MS treatments that range from 20 dollars to $40,000 or more per year. Researchers believe using antibiotics as a treatment option will improve access to treatment as well as reduce costs. And yet, Antibiotics are supposedly effective on bacteria, but not viruses. So if MS is caused by EVB, which is a virus, it's unclear how the antibiotics would help. Clearly, there is much more to be learned. But how wonderful would it be to have more affordable treatment options for MS that would make them more accessible and less of an equity issue? For chronic Lyme sufferers, since insurance won't cover the additional treatments past the four-week mark, and will only do that if the patient tests positive on what many deem an unreliable test, then we end up with a serious equity issue here. Only people who can afford to privately fund their care are able to receive the care they need, and that's a serious problem popular belief is that healthcare in the United States is currently operating as an industry focused on making money, not as a compassionate response system to provide medical care. I'm not sure exactly where I personally stand regarding the Lyme-MS connection, as I clearly have much more to learn, but I do agree with Lyme activist groups that those who create our medical treatment guidelines should not be the same ones who are also responsible for paying for our treatments. I want to share a few more reasons here why the connection between Lyme and MS can be so confusing. Lyme can cause abnormalities that are comparable to those found in MS, such as positive findings on MRI scans, as well as in cerebrospinal fluid analysis obtained through lumbar punctures and spinal taps. In a recent trial, individuals expressing MS-like neurological symptoms were tested via MRI and CSF, cerebral spinal fluid analysis, which included a test for Borrelia antibodies of spinal fluid. Those with diagnosed MS had the most aberrant MRIs and had oligoclonal bands in their CSF, indicating an abnormal immune response. No Borrelia antibodies were found in cerebral spinal fluid. In this study, they concluded that the patients were in fact suffering from MS, but did not rule out that some may have also been exposed to Borrelia bacterium at some point. They also surmised that the existence of Borrelia antibodies does not establish Borrelia as the cause of the neurological symptoms, just that the person had been previously infected with Borrelia. In another study of 89 people living with MS, only one showed evidence of Borrelia antibodies. Since the initial symptoms of MS and Lyme can be identical, diagnosis can be difficult and is often a process of diagnosis through elimination of possibilities. Since current guidelines require Lyme analysis to be through blood tests that are highly controversial, it's no wonder that many are initially misdiagnosed or missed completely. We understand this since no single approach, blood analysis, spinal tap, lumbar puncture, MRI, or other test can conclusively identify an MS diagnosis. There are now Lyme advocacy groups around the world. They help people living with Lyme learn to advocate for themselves, which will hopefully bring about much needed change. With the increased attention in recent years, Lyme advocacy groups believe that the CDC is finally updating their numbers from 30,000 infections to 300,000 infections annually because they plan to market a new vaccine. There is definitely a lot of finger pointing, and it's really difficult, despite the research available, to really know what's going on. Many of the ISDA Lyme guideline authors have been found to be paid consultants or patent holders, displaying extreme conflict of interest. Fueling the distrust are the government-supported agencies and doctors who refer to Lyme-literate physicians as, quote, Lyme loonies. But with cases doubling rapidly around the world, one thing is for sure, something is going to give and the truth will come out. I hope you'll follow what's happening in the Lyme world along with me, as it will likely have important ramifications for those of us living with MS and other neurologic and autoimmune conditions. And since Lyme disease is so commonly misdiagnosed as ms chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, ALS, Parkinson's, or even depression, with up to 20% of patients receiving an inaccurate initial diagnosis, and 14% of those being for MS. If you believe this inaccuracy of diagnosis might pertain to you, check out mylimedata.org which is an organization that is building a patient-centered research community to help fuel patient-powered research and advancement in understanding Lyme. One reason why a misdiagnosis of MS for someone suffering from Lyme can be so dangerous beyond not receiving the care that they need is that, as you likely know, when experiencing new symptoms, it's common practice for those of us with MS to receive steroids to suppress our immune system. This will backfire for someone with Lyme or a similar infection because it allows the infection to multiply and run rampant, causing very serious illness. I've met folks with diagnosed MS for whom steroids make them even worse, so this is definitely something to be aware of. And as people living with MS, it's important for us to know that a Borrelia exposure can often trigger an MS relapse. So it behooves us to understand the current risks for Lyme in our area and know how to experience the outdoors safely to avoid a tick bite in the first place. When neither MS nor Lyme can be definitively identified, the most typical course of action is to just continue to monitor the patient over time to watch for progression. No wonder the diagnosis process can take so long and be so frustrating for both the Lyme and MS communities. Lastly, since so much of what I've shared is highly contentious and without consensus, I want to end with something most experts can agree upon. With the steady increase of people living with chronic illnesses, we can, and should, think about the rise of these illnesses as indicators of what's changing in our environment. Microbes are no longer symbiotic with us because we are no longer symbiotic with the environment. Experts believe the future will hold many more unknown pathogens, bacterium, virus, and other microorganisms that can and will cause disease. Let's hope we find some answers soon regarding MS, Lyme, EBV, and COVID-19 so that we are better prepared for whatever we encounter next and that we find ways to live more harmoniously with our planet moving forward. I hope that after listening to this episode, we all, one, most of all, understand that Lyme, like MS, is a complex condition that is very difficult to diagnose and treat and live with. Two, that we each spend some time reflecting on our own MS story to see if we might have experiences with Lyme as well and how that may impact our MS past, present, and future. And three, that we pay attention to evolving MS and Lyme data, as well as data on EBV and COVID-19, to look for relevant breakthroughs that may alleviate much of the suffering patients experience in their quest for an accurate diagnosis, effective treatment, and improved quality of life. Our next Misunderstood flock meeting will be Saturday, May 7th. At the flock meeting, we'll discuss this episode and other episodes released this month, and spend some time together celebrating recent wins and supporting one another with current hardships. If you're not yet a flock member but would like to be, join us. We are all people living with MS that meet via Zoom the first Saturday of each month to support each other and continue our learning on the episode topics. Even though there are a lot of Flock members, typically less than 10 or so people attend each month, so we're a nice, small, unintimidating group that welcomes new members eagerly and with much warmth. You can learn more and join us by visiting patreon.com slash msflock. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with MS-related questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another, and honking our encouragement. As always, thank you for listening, and until next time, be well. (coughs) Bye. <coughs>